Artificial intelligence has been a topic of political conversation for quite some time. I should know, I partly wrote a book about it. It's called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. Though I must say, when I wrote that book and when it was published, many people were skeptical about the rise of the robots and how technological change would disrupt the economic status quo. Sure, they would say. Aaron, this might be coming in the 2040s or 50s or 60s, or maybe when we're all dead in the 2100s, but this is not a problem for right now, here in the 2020s. Yet, with the development of ChatGPT over the last 12 months, people are finally starting to have that conversation. Maybe artificial intelligence is far more developed than we realize, and with exponential improvements, perhaps it's getting out of control. Ian Hogarth is a founder and investor in technology companies. He wrote a brilliant article in the FT Weekend magazine talking about all of these issues and how, in fact, we may need political regulation to catch up with technology. Ian, welcome to Downstream. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. We're going to talk about some really big issues, which a lot of our audience may not be that acquainted with, artificial intelligence, machine learning, etc. Why do you have authority on these topics and, and why should they listen to you over the next hour? I'm not sure I have that much authority. I, I can tell you my background. So I, um, I studied machine learning at university. I did a master's, started off with making a robot, and then after that made a computer vision system. So that's systems where you, you, know, you basically teach a machine to see in some way, recognize patterns, visual patterns. And the system that I built... Um, was one that could replicate some of the job that a radiologist does when looking at um, cancer biopsy images. So I sort of started out with, a, I suppose, a very engineer's mindset thinking about this. I then built a, a software business as a, as a founder and a CEO for a number of years. Um, and then I've kind of been involved in this as, since then as really uh, an investor and I guess an academic. So as an investor, um, invested in about 50 companies um, applying AI to different fields, um, including some of the larger companies in the field like Anthropic, which is the second most funded AI startup in the world, um, and Helsing, which is a leading AI defense company. And, um, and then outside of that, I've really been trying to, you know, expand the level of public awareness of what is happening in AI, primarily by writing a report called the State of AI Report, which I've written for the last five years. It's one of the most widely read annual reports on everything happening in machine learning over the course of a year. So I've been sort of trying to just expand the kind of, you know, the, the quality of public information out there for policymakers or for, you know, citizens who are interested to find out more. Well, that's quite an authority. I mean, I like the humility at the start, but you know, I think you, you're going to know what you're talking about. And for people who, who are aren't quite clear about um, your your writing. I mean, I, I suppose a quick stop for them would be this recent article you wrote in the FT Weekend magazine. Can you just briefly go over some of the issues you discussed in it? Yeah, so um, I wrote I wrote that article uh, maybe a month ago now, and the core idea is that there are a small number of incredibly well funded private companies, um, primarily in London and San Francisco. Um, that are kind of locked into a race where they're all racing as fast as possible to build um, what they describe as AGI. Um, and AGI is basically a kind of godlike AI system that is capable of doing almost anything a human can do and more. And um, I felt like that race is now getting quite out of control and we need to slow it down. And so I wrote that um, essay to really just try to um, 
you know, shine a light on some of the things that, um, you know, I learn about as part of my work, but that are maybe not public domain. So, you know, I spend time talking to the people running these organizations and I just sort of could see that the level of concern behind closed doors had really ratcheted up and it felt like there was a big disconnect between the kind of public discourse and what people were saying in private. So I wrote the essay really just to try to close that gap a little bit. That's so interesting. So we're talking really about a machine which is capable of augmenting its own intelligence and very quickly you get a a super intelligence, so to speak, an intelligence that we can't really fathom as, as human beings. You said that the fears and the concerns around that had ratcheted up. Over what time frame are we talking here? Uh... So I, I suppose maybe it's worth zooming out and just talking about progress in the field in general. So um, if you sort of look at AI systems over the last um, decade, they've quite predictably gotten bigger. And so what we've done is every year we've been kind of increasing the amount of computing resources we give the largest AI models. And we've also been giving those systems more data to train on. And so uh, that's been actually a very consistent exponential curve that's been running now for over a decade. Um, and there've really been a couple of big kind of moments in time. The first was the founding of DeepMind, which really just brought a huge amount of ambition and energy to this challenge of like making these even bigger and more powerful systems. And the second I would say was OpenAI, which introduced a competitor to DeepMind that suddenly meant there was a race. And those organizations have been racing against each other now for, you know, best part of their entire founding history. Um, and if you look at that, we've gone from kind of, you know, feeding these systems, you know, you know, some tens of thousands, you know, or millions of images to feeding um, these systems most of the internet. And we've increased the amount of computing resource we give these kind of most powerful AI models by a factor of 100 million in just a decade. And so there's been this very, very, you know, continuous progress in the field. But as with any exponential, it's really only when you get to the steep bit of the curve, you start feeling it. And I think the last couple of years have are kind of basically this, where the curve has just suddenly felt a lot steeper and things have been changing weekly or daily rather than yearly. Wow, that is really extraordinary. So the, the word exponential for people who aren't necessarily familiar with it, my goodness, virtually everybody is in 2023, but this was broadly integrated within discussions around computer science by Gordon Moore with Moore's Law and this idea that broadly speaking, computational power would, there's a bunch of ways of sort of discussing it, but the same amount of power would basically halve in cost every 18 months to two years. Um, and that has happened for a long time. It's kind of decelerating, but it's happened for a very long time. You're saying with AI, there's a bunch of variables. So it's not just the computational power. It's also the, the data that it's feeding on. And the, and the two of these is important, right? Correct. And so, you know, for your, for your listeners, um, uh, an exponential, you know, thinking about it simply is, for example, a system that doubles every year. Right? And so if you play that out over a number of years, you get a very steep curve um, because some property of the system is allowing it to kind of grow in that way. And the classic we saw was with COVID, but we as humans, I think are just really poor at thinking about exponentials. They're just, they're, they're not intuitive to us. Mm -hmm. And so we saw it with COVID, you know, it's kind of January, you know, people start to pay a bit of attention. February, things get more serious. March, some people really start to get, and then we're suddenly locked down. And that's kind of the nature, I think, of a system where, um, you're having a doubling effect over some period of time. And that's what's been happening in AI for a decade is just we're now at the kind of February 2020 moment in AI where things are just going super, super quickly. That's such a powerful analogy. Obviously, you can't go into the nature of private conversations you've had with people, but, but when people are putting a date on it, what are they saying with regards to an AGI then? I mean, and like you say, it's hard to predict by virtue of exponential growth, but are they saying in the 2020s, next year? I mean- 
What's the, the broad time frame here? Well, so the first thing I'd say is that the people leading these companies have been thinking about this problem for a long time. Um, you know, some of them have been kind of, you know, um, a good example would be Shane Legg. So someone I admire greatly, he's a, you know, he's a brilliant computer scientist. He runs DeepMind's AI alignment efforts, which I, we'll probably talk about in a bit what that is as, as, a, as an area. Um, but Shane, you know, he did his PhD on sort of a computational basis for machine superintelligence has made many sort of quite sophisticated predictions over the years around what it would exactly take in terms of the amount of computing resource and the amount of data before you would actually get a superintelligent machine that was kind of an artificial general intelligence. And so the people in this field have been thinking about it a long time. And I pay the most attention to the people who have been consistently making good predictions um, to me behind closed doors about what will happen. And the thing that I've noticed is it used to be the case that people would say stuff like, you know, it's possible we might get um, an AGI, a super intelligent machine um, in the next 30 years or the next 20 years. But everyone, I think, thought the idea of kind of something happening next year was kind of ridiculous. And now I think if you ask people, you know, uh, let's say, for example, you know, um, there was a select committee and the various leaders of these labs, the technical leaders were asked under oath. Uh, what's their probability that we get a superintelligence next year? It's not going to be zero percent, whereas I think it would have been before. Whereas now it might be, I don't know, five percent. And so you have this kind of shift where I think everybody is starting to just sort of say, actually, we might be closer than we realised. We should start taking it seriously the possibility that we might be very close. So if a private enterprise develops an AGI, an artificial general intelligence, what happens next? Do you think? I have no idea. I, I think that the um, the AI alignment community would basically say, you know, most likely outcome is we're all dead. <laughs> um, the CEO of OpenAI, he had this kind of, it was, you know, interviewed about the worst case scenario, this stuff goes badly wrong. Um, and he had this line where he said, you know, worst case scenario is lights out for humanity. And that was a statement that Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, that developers of ChatGPT and GPT-4 made about that kind of existential risk. Um, now, I don't think he's saying that about next year, um, but the real question is, if we build an incredibly powerful intelligence system before we figured out how to make it safe, I think we should have relatively low confidence it's going to go well for humanity. And there's, there's a kind of very, um, you know, I guess, sophisticated intellectual argument about how to think about that. And that's the sort of thing that someone like Eliezer Yudikowsky would would write about, um, where he'll talk through the sort of exact mechanisms by, by which a a system that's much more intelligent than humans um, treats us, you know, treats us badly, um, you know, primarily by accident. Um, but I, I think actually the kind of common sense way of thinking about it makes more sense, which just says, you know, um, humans have kind of changed the 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 environment on earth very significantly um, as a result of our intelligence relative to other species and that's had you know significant consequences for some species and for the biosphere in general and i think we should sort of just common sense tells you that something similar might happen if we invent something more intelligent than us wouldn't the counter argument be i suppose that though that we've learned that over time we are dependent on the biosphere for our our own systems, political, social, economic, to, to sustain. I suppose, is there not an optimistic account of an AGI? And I think obviously there's a great deal of um, thought put behind being sceptical about this stuff, and I'm also sceptical. But is there not also a world where you have an AGI, which is in some way benevolent, um, capable of very long-term planning, capable of awesome problem solving on a scale that we can't really comprehend? 
Yeah, and and just to be really clear, I um I think that is, you know, the that is the happy path we're now on. I think there's there's basically three paths. There's the we have a moratorium that just completely shuts this down. And that could be like, you know, some of the other moratoria we've had around, you know, genetic engineering, for example, um, you know, eugenics. Um, there could be a another path where we develop this kind of hastily and not thoughtfully and kind of wipe ourselves out in the process. And there's this third path, which is the one I think we should really all be oriented on, which is we build systems that massively expand the amount of kind of wisdom in the universe and we cure diseases that can't be cured today. We, you know, we have enormous technological abundance. And so there certainly is an approach where we build AGI and it goes incredibly well for us as a species. Um, the question is just, are we on track to do that or not the way we're doing it today with a small number of private companies racing to do it as quickly as possible. So with regards to ChatGPT4, which was released in um, March by OpenAI, which is aligned with Microsoft, how big a jump was that from ChatGPT3, which was obviously the previous version? So ChatGPT, when it came out, was was arguably a, a, a user interface on top of a very powerful language model that already existed. And so you already had these amazing language models that OpenAI had trained um, and Anthropic and, and Google had trained to do very powerful things. And what OpenAI did with ChatGPT is they basically created a way to interact with it that let, that suddenly opened it up to a lot more people. And so in many ways, it wasn't a um, a sort of research technological breakthrough. It was actually a user interface breakthrough and said, like, here's a way to use this that suddenly feels a lot more organic and natural to an end user, a consumer playing around with GPT. The, the thing they released after that, which was called GPT-4, was a significant update because the chat GPT was based on, I think what well, they, they were calling it GPT 3.5. Mm. And that, that was a big jump in the underlying model. So for example, GPT 3.5, um, when you sort of, you know, uh, tried to get it to do the bar exam, scored in the bottom 10% of results, whereas GPT-4 scored in the top 10% of results. So in a single generation of models, you had this massive leap in capabilities where it went from basically not really being able to be a lawyer to being able to be a lawyer. Uh, and so GPT-4 was a massive step forward for language models in general and, and like, you know, one of the most impressive technological artifacts humanity has ever created. And, and what was the basis of that jump from 3.5 to 4? Was it purely because there was more data being fed or there's been a sudden boost in computational power or? So uh, it's a great question and we don't really know. So OpenAI hasn't really explained to us what data they trained it on, the amount of computing resources they used for it, any algorithmic breakthroughs they they made. They have kind of um, kind of gone from being uh, very open, open AI, kind of being very open with their research to being much more closed with their research. And they have done it, I believe, for good reason, which is they they sort of don't want to accelerate things any more than they have to by suddenly making it more, um, more possible to replicate this and kind of cause a huge amount of proliferation of this technology. This is so interesting. So could it be possible then that open AI are further down the road to AGI than we really discuss, we really talk about? But the incentives aren't really there to to be quite public about it, right? The incentives are there to actually be quite private and discreet, and to not really, not really convey how how close we are to a really transformational technology. Yeah, the incentives are really challenging. So I'll, I'll actually give you a, a, a quite a concrete example that I think brings the race to life. So 
I'm a, you know, one of the first investors in this company, Anthropic. And Anthropic um, was founded by a group of people who left OpenAI and set up a new AI startup. Um, uh, and it was the people who did it, uh, founded it, were the people who led the research on GPT-2 and then GPT-3, so the precursors to these, these large language models. So they really are the key people from OpenAI who did a lot of the large language model sort of early work. And their new company is very much oriented around a greater emphasis um, on safety. Um, so they, you know, they have a, you know, something like fifty percent of their headcount in twenty twenty one was dedicated to uh, alignment research and safety, which is higher than any of the other labs like DeepMind or OpenAI. Um, and they had a product like ChatGPT um, about six months prior to OpenAI releasing um, ChatGPT. And if they'd released it, it would have suddenly put Anthropic on the map in a big way. It would have been, mm. a, they would have attracted so much more capital, more attention. And they held it back because they felt like it would just accelerate this race in a counterproductive way. Um, and so there's a really, you know, if you think about the incentives, it's working against them as a capitalist entity to just hold back stuff, to release less, to create less hype. It's quite challenging. And so recently, they just actually made an announcement, uh, maybe two weeks ago, um, where they expanded the context window for the largest language models to 100,000 tokens. And um, just to explain what that means, it's basically the the size of the document that you can feed into a language model and have it work with for you. And so it massively changes what you can do. You could feed like a huge legal document or a massive code base into a GPT-4-like model and get a much more sophisticated response as a result of that. So it's a huge technological breakthrough. It lit kind of, you know, the AI research community and, and, and sort of startup community on fire when they did it. And that ultimately attracted more attention to them, probably more capital over time. And so there's these perverse incentives where if you're a startup, you're kind of incentivized to get as much capital and attention as possible so you yeah. can go faster. Yeah. But actually, if everyone does that, then we kind of burn the, the time we have to make this stuff safe. So it's a very challenging coordination problem where the incentives encourage racing rather than careful, slowed down coordination. I'm very happy you said that. There's a great quote from Jeffrey Hinton, um, who recently resigned from Google. And he said in an event, I think Google was very responsible to begin with. This is DeepMind. Um, but once OpenAI had built similar things using money from Microsoft and Microsoft decided to put it out there, then Google didn't have much choice. If you're going to live in a capitalist system, you can't stop Google competing with Microsoft. So it almost sounds to me like one of the most powerful things about the market system competition, which can lead to incredible efficiencies, has upside as well as downside. But particularly with regards to AI, this, this sounds almost like you couldn't build a, a worse system to potentially accelerate development while also not really addressing things which could go very badly wrong. Yeah, I, I think that's... Um... It's very challenging because there are areas of, of AI research where we, I think actually capitalist competition is extremely good. So for example, there's 10 startups and they're all competing to make AI systems that can take in cancer biops images, analyze them really well and improve the lives of patients, right? I'm not worried about that having a negative consequence on the world. And I think actually the price signals, the competition will be really good and it'll ultimately give us all you know, cheaper healthcare, um, you know, more innovation in the market. So the area of, I guess, narrow AI, where AI is just doing a single task quite 
quite specified and without these existential considerations, I think this kind of capitalist competition can be great. The problem is if we're trying applying the same logic to the part of the the problem where we're trying to build something smarter than us, <laughs> that's basically a new species. And that I think the the kind of capitalist market dynamic is not helpful. And I think that you know what's great is that the leaders of these organisations, I think in their own ways, they all kind of have it, done important things to acknowledge this. So um, you know, Demis. The CEO of um, DeepMind is someone I, I really admire. You know, he's really oriented a lot of DeepMind's efforts towards um, expanding the scientific commons. You know, things like AlphaFold, which they release for free, and they've really expanded the amount of. That's not a very sort of capitalist maneuver to basically produce this massive breakthrough and then and then kind of give it away. Um, but I think it hints at how he thinks the. The, get, the economic gains from this should be distributed. Sam Altman, you know, the CEO of OpenAI, um, he's talked about how he wanted to have the government fund OpenAI early on. So he didn't want to raise money from mm. private investors, just didn't, didn't get the support from the government to do that. Um, he's also, or he and his team have explicitly said that if the race becomes too dangerous in their charter, they've said, we will merge and assist another player to change the coordination dynamics for the better. And Anthropic have got a very, you know, very, very thoughtful set of statements they've made about how they want to ultimately be much more cautious as we get closer to this kind of godlike AI. Um, so I think we have actually leadership that is trying hard to do this. It just doesn't really work within the current economic system. Mm. Um, and so for example, I, you know, I fought a anti um antitrust case against Ticketmaster in the, in the United States as part of the the startup that I built, Songkick. And so, you know, I'm very supportive of uh, the kind of, you know, the the work that um, Lena Khan um, the, or the CMA have been doing to try to sort of um, decrease concentration in certain markets. Um, but I think in this case, actually sort of antitrust is actually quite harmful because it almost creates m it makes it harder to coordinate. There's less of a safe harbor. And so I think the main thing we need to do is really view these as quite different regimes. There's this kind of narrow AI regime, and there's this trying to build a God regime. Mm -hmm. And that bit needs a different regulatory approach to that bit. There's a quote from Marx. It's in the Communist Manifesto. I actually, I was reading this the other day. That's why I, I come on this channel, yeah, just, to, just I, to hear about, hear about, hear this about is, Marx. This is, no, this is, Ian, this is terrifying. Now, bear in mind, he wrote this 170 years ago. Marx wrote how capitalist society had, quote, conjured up such gigantic means of production and exchange that it was akin to a sorcerer, quote, no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. I mean, wow, that sounds like capitalist competition creating something completely beyond motivation and intentionality and over which has very little oversight. Now, of course, he's talking about, you know, um, steam power and and mills in Manchester and Brussels and uh, Frankfurt in the mid-19th century. But if anything, those words sound more appropriate for AGI in the 21st century. Yeah, I think that one, um, one way to sort of frame the capital and kind of labor, uh, the sort of relative power of those, of those two groups is, is just looking at the size of some of these organizations. So, you know, OpenAI is a, uh, I think privately valued at 30 billion US dollars now, um, you know, significantly changing the world, hundreds of millions of people now using their products. And I, I think, you know, at the time they released ChatGPT, it was probably a few hundred people in terms of the size of the organization and the, the labor that's directly, um, you know, benefiting from kind of the, the, the work that's being done there. Um, 
and I think that again, you know, the the leaders of these companies are actually tr- thinking hard about this. So Sam Altman, um, you know, a couple of things I admire that he's done. The first is he was running a very large UBI study in Oakland. Um, and so he was, you know, that was, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, he was thinking hard about this question of how do you kind of, how do you, uh, if you do have um, further and further returns to capital, what do you do about kind of that not that not just massively increasing inequality? Um, and, you know, he's done this thing called WorldCoin, which is kind of a much more extreme version of that, which is a machine that scans your retina, produces a unique ID for you that would then let you be part of a global UBI scheme. And so, wow. and so there are, you know, they, these kind of people are thinking about these, these kind of the way in which this may fundamentally disrupt some of the, the ways in the, the, the social contract we currently have that allows capitalism to sort of just continue as it, as it does. But I suppose the concern is you can't be worried. Uh, you can't be dependent rather on benevolence and and the foresight of certain individuals. You know, there was a great quote uh, a couple of years ago from uh, Mark Cuban, and he was saying, "I wouldn't teach my kid to be an accountant." We now know that it was probably quite a good move because you know that's one of the the industries which is very much prone to automation with machine learning. I'd rather they learn philosophy because it will give them insights that you know, are harder to automate, so to speak. Um, and I thought that was interesting. Now, alongside that, he said the world's first trillionaire will be the person who can master widespread commercial applications of AI. And that's the prize on offer, isn't it? I mean, that's the prize on offer. So today we talk about Amazon, which is a trillion dollar company, or used to be, borderline trillion dollar company, Amazon, Microsoft, um, those kinds of big players. But the truth is the commercial entity which masters an AGI, and we don't all die, will put all those guys in the dust, won't they? So there are massive incentives for people to pursue this technology without the kinds of caution and intelligence and thoughtfulness that you've talked about with regards to somebody like Sam Altman. Yeah. And I think what's what's um, challenging in some ways is we've entered a new phase of this race. So if you look at the leaders of these organizations, the ones who are kind of really at the forefront of the race, whether it's Demis or Sam or Dario at Anthropic, um, I would say that most of them are kind of not particularly motivated by money at this point. They're doing this for some other reason. Um, you know, Sam, you know, recently announced that he actually has no equity in OpenAI, so doesn't stand to benefit economically from, you know, he won't be the world's first trillionaire. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think that there's they've been motivated by other things, and I would say mostly they've been sort of motivated by being the people to do it, to make yeah. make this thing come alive and, you know, the, the consequences of that. Um, it's kind of a world historic transition that they want to be a big part of, um, is, is my, I guess, my hypothesis. Uh, but there are now a lot of other people who've kind of suddenly woken up and just seen dollar bills. Yeah. And those people are just piling on money. They haven't really thought about it. They don't have the same sort of reverence that people like Demis uh, have got for how we should be approaching this moment. And they're they're actually accelerating the race, but without that same, you know, intrinsic motivation for the 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 thing they're trying to do and much more of a kind of, you know, much more of a desire just to, to make money. So for people out there who are perhaps skeptical of what I'm saying here about a trillionaire, if you told a 14, 15 year old Ian or a 14, 15 year old Aaron, we're about the same age, that one day there'll be somebody worth 250 billion US dollars, 200 billion US dollars, like Jeff Bezos, we would have thought that's outlandish. Yet he's the guy who starts Amazon and that's the company which benefits from network effects, you know, um, ubiquitous mobile internet and basically building the everything store of e-commerce. And I suppose the question is, could you f- 
feasibly see a company like Amazon, which is applying AI to a bunch of industries which lay off hundreds of thousands of people, just like Amazon have basically shut down hundreds of thousands of local businesses. And and, and that's the outcome we get. Do you think that's do you think that's a plausible outcome? I think it is. I think that, you know, our um I think it is possible. And I think the reason for it is that you are you know, you first of all have a much more globalized economy where things can spread really quickly across borders in a way they couldn't, especially dig- digital products. Um, secondly, you have, uh, you know, a lot of these technological, uh, you know, um, products build on top of uh, prior networks. So, for example, ChatGPT is the fastest growing product in in kind of ever on the internet, but that's partly because we've got Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Google and all the ways that information disseminates and and spreads faster than it did before. Um, and finally, I think we're starting to tackle some of these incredibly large markets. Like, you know, what SpaceX is doing is basically tackling, you know, global internet provision through mm-hmm. Starlink, right? And so this is a very big thing. It's not like digging up the street and smashing in loads of fiber. It's something where, you know, the same satellites can basically provide um, internet access to wherever you are in the world without that same degree of physical disruption. And so I do think it's possible. Um, I think a, a good thought experiment for the kind of company that might that might be an example of this is the first company to really build incredibly good domestic robots, right? So you know, I've got a I've got a four year old. When I'm doing chores around the house, I always sort of say to him, you know, one day, you know, one day maybe there's going to be a robot doing this um, because you know we didn't used to have dishwashers, we didn't used to have washing machines, we didn't used to have tumble dryers, and now we have all those things. We take them for granted. They're in most homes in the world. What would it be like if we had a robot in our house that just did all the chores that we currently do as, as kind of around around everything else we're doing in our lives? But also that robot could be your plumber when things break, your electrician, your handy, your handy person, go to the shops for you. So when you think about kind of that sort of disruption, could it be a you know ten trillion dollar company where the person founding it is a trillionaire? Like quite quite possibly in in, in my view. A quick sort of move away from machine learning software to the kind of robot that you're talking about. How far away do you think that is, by the way, as a sort of household appliance that, you know, middle class people in the UK or US would be able to buy? Well, so I think it really is fundamentally the same curve we're talking about with AI. So robots basically are machine learning. They're just embodied machine learning where it has a physical presence it's using as well. And we've made, I know I've invested in lots of robotics businesses over the years, and it's amazing how rapidly they're progressing. We don't actually see the number of robots that we're using because they're mostly industrial settings. Mm. They're like industrial cleaning robots or industrial manufacturing robots or agricultural robots. And so it's happening. And I think that we will start in the next few years to see robots in much more consumer settings, really starting with the rollout of self-driving cars. And so I, I think we will see humanoid robots that significantly enhance our, our lives um, in a domestic setting within the next decade. Um, next decade? And a lot of that will be wow. knock-on effects from the work we've, we're doing in making these powerful AI systems. So to bring this back to large language models and, and the sort of things that DeepMind and OpenAI are working on, there was a paper called the Toolformer paper that came out earlier this year, and it essentially shows that large language models are actually quite good at using tools, which is quite counterintuitive. But to break it down, you take an incredibly large computer, you feed it an enormous amount of text and imagery, and basically get it to get really good at predicting, um, you know, predicting what it's going to see. Um, If you take that same sort of blob of intelligence that just becomes smart in some important way, and you give it access to a tool, 
it is actually quite good at using a tool, whether it's a, you know, uh, you know, um, a digital tool or a physical tool. And so large language models actually will have a knock-on effect on real-world robotics. They're not sort of separate industries at all. They're very, very related. I like it. And, and how far are we from machines basically be able, being able to do anything that a human does? So in my mind, I think sort of 25 to 30 years where we have software hardware, which can basically do 95% of the jobs that humans do, at the moment, the big obstacle to that obviously is the fine motor coordination dexterity that things like cleaning or construction kind of relies upon. So it's easier to automate legal services or accountancy than it is, like you say, plumbing. Great example. How, how far are we from being able to solve the problem of the fine motor coordination? Mm. So the, I, I guess the we don't really know, right? That kind of goes back to this question of how far away from are we from AGI? How far away are we from like sort of super intelligent systems? Yeah. No one knows. All I will say is people have more, they put more probability on it happening soon rather than later. So Jeffrey Hinton, who resigned from Google recently, you know, he said, I used to think this was, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something like, I used to think this was decades away. And now I think it's not inconceivable. It happens in the next five years. And he's the, he's, you know, the godfather of, of machine learning, the, the, um, the researcher that really kicked off this whole field of large neural networks. And really the, the, like sort of the, 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 mo you know, one of the most important people in the field over the last a few decades. And so um, we don't know, but I think we now need to sort of start to prepare as if we might be closer than people have realized. And the public certainly has realized. Yeah. I mean, this is a big challenge to our economic system, right? So I mean, I wrote a book about this called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. Yeah. And the point is, if you get increasingly affordable technology, which can do anything that a human can do, whether it's with regards to abstract problem solving or physical capabilities like building a house or cleaning a house or cooking a meal, what that does is clearly depress the price of labor to zero. That's what's going to happen. That's a neoclassical understanding of how of how supply and, and demand would work with the cost of labor, of human labor. And yet, if you say that to a lot of people, including politicians, including quote unquote smart people in legacy media and uh, the policy world, they think you're crazy. And it's interesting for me seeing the reception of my book, FT, oh, this is interesting, very provocative, New York Times and so on. But then in some other places, I won't name the, the papers, but they were just sort of like, this is ridiculous. They were sort of mocking it. Where do you think this asymmetry comes from where some people take these ideas very seriously and then others just completely disregard them? Is, there, is it a lack of information? Do you think it comes from a place of fear? Because realistically, if this is correct, you know, we're going to have to shake things really up a lot, aren't we? I think it's a great question. I think I think I guess I've got two hypotheses. The first is goes back to the thing we we're talking about with exponential change. It's just so hard to think intuitively about exponential progress, and so um, you know, I, COVID is a you know a, is sort of fresh in our minds. And I remember in sort of January or uh, January, I was planning a trip to China with a friend, and actually our tri our trip took us through Wuhan, mm -hmm. and he's a expert in kind of. Uh, biology in various ways. And I, I you know, spent a bunch of time in China when I was younger studying Mandarin. And so we were talking about this trip and we we're talking about COVID and we sort of started to see the little, the little inklings that COVID was going to potentially go pandemic. And I, I remember um, both of us were starting to do, you know, prepare and get really worried ahead of a lot of the sort of mainstream news. But at the same time, we we're both like, well, maybe it'll be done by the time that our trip comes around, right? And it's just a perfect example of like we were we thought we were being clever, but actually we seriously still did not really have a good intuition for 
actually what happens when exponentials really take off. Mm. Um, and I think that there's a bit of that where if you're a politician that's just dealing with, you know, you know, day-to-day issues and you're then confronted with an exponential change, be it, uh, you know, um, uh, what we're doing with, with climate change or um, a pandemic or an accelerating technology like AI, it, you just don't really have an intuitive way to navigate that. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is just exponentials require, a, I think, a certain kind of radical thinking. You know, it's sort of like what the, I think the UK government did really brilliantly with Kate Bingham and the vaccine task force. I think it was a great example of kind of just incredibly bold, proactive leadership on a serious thing, getting, let's get ahead of it. Let's get, let's, let's build that capacity early. Let's, let's throw everything at it and prepare as best as possible because we know this exponential is coming. And that kind of political action and leadership is just, I think, like quite hard to do. And I think why is, it, why is it hard to do? Is it because politicians don't like doing it or because it's just objectively hard to execute? I think it's radical, basically. And I think it's a, it's not business as usual. You know, it's first principles thinking you maybe have to take more risk. Um, and there just haven't been that many examples of um, political leaders who've, who've kind of acted like that over the last couple of decades in response to technological change. And I, I remember in uh, 2018, I wrote this essay, AI Nationalism, that really talked about this kind of this fundamental challenge that was coming down the pipe with AI. And I remember meeting with with kind of MPs from Labour, MPs from the, you know Conservatives, laying out these ideas, and almost everyone just looked at me like I was completely crazy because mm. um, I was saying things like, "Next time we have a company like DeepMind, we shouldn't let it be acquired because it's too critical to the future of the UK." Um, and then, you know, three or four years later, um, I saw similar politicians basically saying, oh, yeah, now we have to be serious about blocking acquisitions of some, you know, strategically important U- UK technology companies. And so I think it's just also discomfort with really radical ideas. I think there's much more of a comfort in politics with incrementalism. And that's why often big change happens when you have a crisis. Mm. We'll come back to the politics in a moment. I want to ask you, I want to ask you an almost existential question. A super intelligent artificial general intelligence, would it be conscious? I don't know. I, I think that there's, a th- I was actually talking about this with um, uh, someone who specialized in quantum computing um, yesterday. And their view is actually that like conscious consciousness is a, a kind of quantum mechanical property, a property of quantum physics. And therefore it, you will not be, it will not be possible to get consciousness on a classical computer. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but like their claim was basically we all sort of need quantum computers to actually have conscious AIs. Um, I, I don't know. I What's think- the argument behind that, by the way? What, yeah. So where does that come from? It, it comes from a, it's a, it comes from quite a um, I guess an esoteric argument about kind of about exactly how we interrelate with the metaverse, um, which I, I'm not, you know I'm not enough of an expert on any of those topics to really opine, um, but. The way I think about it is is consciousness and intelligence are probably kind of somewhat orthogonal. You don't necessarily get you know get one with the other. Um, and I don't. I think it may have been a uh, the way it may be an artifact of of biological life, which is inherently quantum, rather than necessarily sort of classical computing. So we still could fabricate something close to consciousness, but it would just require quantum. Maybe, or maybe it's not possible. We, we just don't. We, we, consciousness is something, as far as I can tell, we don't really understand at all. So we, I think it'd be quite difficult to project how to think about consciousness when it comes to machines. Like, 
if I'm understanding it correctly, um, uh, when you um, when you get uh, you know when you have an operation, you go under anaesthetic. You know the drugs you're being given essentially just switch off your consciousness, and we don't really understand like why and how that works. And so it's quite hard before we really understand consciousness to really make any claims about how AIs will be conscious. I think the the, the but I think we should probably start from the basis that they might not be conscious, but they might still be incredibly intelligent and capable of planning in ways that 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 are threatening to humanity. So we we could have an AGI which is an existential threat to humanity without it being sentient. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting. And it could be trying to maximize its own utility. It could be trying to max its, maximize its own interests without really being aware of itself as an entity. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I'm um, thinking about it kind of like the Sorcerer's Apprentice is probably the kind of like a really mainstream example of kind of something where you give it a some sort of goal and the optimization of that goal ultimately leads to something that is not what you wanted. And so that's what the field of alignment is about. It's basically about how do you align those goals with our goals as a species. What does this mean to the average person? So we're talking about AI, you know, partly abstract, partly real world. So we're talking about, you know, the potential of trillionaires. We're talking about consciousness. We're talking about politicians asleep at the wheel. But what does it mean to somebody out there who's watching median income, homeowner, mortgage, owner-occupier, if there is an artificial general intelligence that's created, say, in the next five to 10 years, how will that impact their lives over the next, say, 25 to 30 years? Uh, so again, with exponentials, saying anything about, you know, 20 years is really hard. Um, but so, but, but so, I- yeah, so let, let's say it's developed. That's the exponential part. And then let's say there's almost like a cap on AGI. Like it's not really developed after that for regulatory reasons or whatever, political reasons. I'm trying to really ask, what are the implications for just everyday people, rather than us talking about, you know, yeah. like you say, some breakthrough, which is akin to the printing press. The average person in 16th century Europe doesn't really care about the printing press, but then the Reformation happens and that is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I think that like, uh, I think that synthetic media is a really, really big deal. And I think there is extremely low popular support for it. Um, so, you know, as an example, you know, you can take the sort of generative AI systems, the systems that are creative capable of generating images or text, and you can use them for harmful purposes. So I'll give you a few examples. The first is you can take um, a, a snippet of someone speaking and you can then you know, effectively synthetically clone their voice. And that is now being used by people to do kind of fake kidnappings where you get a snippet of a child's voice and you basically create a phone call from them calling their parents saying, mum, I've been kidnapped. Um, if you don't do this, then I'm going to you know, something horrible is going to be done to me. And that happened in, I think, Texas uh, about two, two, um, two months ago. And so that's kind of happening. Um, another thing that's happening is around um, synthetic um, child sexual abuse material. And so the systems you can use to create a kind of funny image of the Pope in a puffer jacket, you can also use, use to create, you know, horrible deep faked porn, including horrible deep faked child sexual abuse material. And that is currently happening. People are using these systems to do that, particularly the kind of open source ones. Um, and the knock on effect is then you've got a, you know, the police are suddenly faced with, you know, is this an image of a child that's actually being harmed or a fake image and having to sort of shard their resources between kind of basically fake crimes and real crimes. And so there's a huge number of malicious uses that will bubble up from this very powerful technology where you can clone someone's likeness, someone's image, someone's voice. Um, 
So I think of that as being like the real structural problem that we're going to encounter. And I think that there, you know, I was talking to someone the other day who's been doing focus groups around this. Um, and they were just telling me like, you know, basically the public at large thinks deep fakes should be made illegal already. <laughs> so there's a kind of, I think a, a lot of stuff bubbling under the surface that when it breaks through is going to really, um, it's going to really have actually quite a populist response to it because it's just, it seems like something the government should be getting a grip of. And do you think they will? Is there any sort of, you're in this game, is there any, any evidence that they will? I think they will actually. Yeah. I think it's just, it, it passes a kind of common sense test of that. That is not a good thing that should be happening. So I think there'll be a genuine motivation to make deep fakes, deep, deep fakes without someone's permission illegal. Um, and I think lots of politicians will want to do that. But I think the mechanism for doing that when you've got significant proliferation of these capabilities into open source is a bit trickier, right? Because the technology is kind of out of the box. And so figuring out how to get it back in, like with the dark web, for example, is, is just challenging. Mm. Um, but uh, I think it will be, I think there'll be broad political support for doing that. You say the common sense thing, but I mean, if you said to somebody 40 years ago that children will be able to access high-speed broadband pornography, be able to stream stuff. I mean, I think most people would say that obviously should be banned. Yeah, that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. I think we've lived through a strange time. You know, I think that, um, I think about social media a lot and how it's sort of remarkable that we basically left this enormous industry that was so transformational to, to everyday life, to children, to politics, to the general discourse, to basically self-regulate. <laughs> You know, and I think there was actually a really, that was well motivated by a desire not to kind of throttle something with regulation and kind of too much, you know, too early. You know, I think it, I, I can kind of, I can see the logic of things like um, Section uh, 320, I think it's called, um, which is kind of the, the sort of the, the mechanism whereby a lot of social media companies have not really have kind of been able to just self-regulate. Um, but it feels like we, I think with the benefit of hindsight, you know, it would have been better for regulators to catch up faster and to, to sort of be a bit more assertive about defining, you know, a, a, a smarter way forward. And I think Biden talked about, you know, for example, um, uh, modifying Section 320 recently, and there's been some discussion about this. But I think with AI, you know, I think then the lawmakers need to move faster because back then, you know, these fledgling startups like YouTube, they had certain sort of, you know, it's kind of a, you know, innovation was valuable and, and and needed to be sort of encouraged. But this is a different ball game where you've got $20 billion already invested in just a handful of companies. You've got, you know, Microsoft aggressively deploying this as fast as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, you've got companies like Facebook open sourcing incredibly powerful models and putting them out there for anyone to sort of expand and modify. And so I don't think, I think we're kind of in like the 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 same scenario. It's just now this is not about small startups and, and fledgling industries. This is about an incredibly powerful tech industry that is just prefers self-regulation to anything else. Do you think social media was a mistake? Because obviously you're, you're involved in the sort of the, the technological side of things and, and how, you know, the technological, technological sort of underpinning of global social media, 4G, 5G, mobile internet, um, high-res screens, all these things. And one outgrowth of that was social media. And Ben Bratton has a really interesting read on this. So he says, we built a global real-time communi uh, communications and computa computational network, you know, including the kind of exosphere of our planet, which is now caked with satellites. We've built all of this infrastructure so that we can sell ad space and be permanently distracted. You know, and, and I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I, and I wonder, we might have something like AI or even an AGI, um, if it's not, you know, deadly, 
and, and we would just get more of the same, perhaps. Um, so I, I, so my day job is I'm an investor, um, and I invest through a fund called Plural, um, and you know it's a European fund focused on accelerating missions that we consider to be of great societal importance. Um, you know by funding them as startups. Um, and one of the companies I work with is a company called Unitary AI, and it's one I'm very proud to be to be kind of working on. It's a, a startup that uses AI to understand content and there, there, thereby to offer a scalable approach to content moderation and content safety across the internet, content security. So for example, their AI can detect some sort of content that should be illegal or some kind of content that is you know, causing significant harms and flag it to the platform that's, that's hosting it. And so they're in many ways kind of like a um, you know like a antibiotic to this kind of this the way in which some of the the sort of um, wild west of content dissemination through social media has kind of has played out. So I think there is kind of a there is a kind of capitalist response coming, but it's hard. And it's much easier to make a new social network than it is to make an AI company that's trying to actually solve this problem of of kind of how do you scalably tackle the challenges of content. Um, to your question of kind of you know, if you could kind of go back in time and 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 stop social media from happening, I wouldn't have done that personally. I think it's delivered enormous benefits. I think I think there is some something amazing about so much connectivity, um, democratization of media production. I mean, you know, like I um, part of the reason I'm sitting here is because I you know I learned about you through Twitter and I, I follow your thinking and I find it interesting. And so I think there is something um, something really miraculous about how connected we are now. I just think the problem is we just never really had governments keep up. Mm. And I think it's something, I think it's the, really the nature of like sort of laissez-faire, neoliberal thinking, having just permeated government over a number of decades where really bold, ambitious projects where the government is a kind of, you know, a real partner to the private sector and actually drives technological change and thinks about regulation in a bold way that embraces exponentials has just been missing. So you think that's neoliberalism? This because we do live in this really strange moment, right? Of like extraordinary technological possibility, like extraordinary, profound liquid biopsies that can detect early onset cancer. You know, mapping the human genome. You know, just high res scans of the human brain. Just you know, year on year improving exponentially. And yet we have politicians who say, "Sorry, we can't address the housing crisis. Sorry, we can't give you affordable healthcare or free healthcare." There's a weird disconnect there. It seems almost like the better the technology gets, the more the possibilities, the opportunities, the less capable the state is in addressing those challenges. So you pin that on neoliberalism. Well, I think that particular problem you describe, like it's hard to really know where it started. Uh, there's a there's a kind of um, an investor I, I really respect called Matt Clifford, and he has a kind of a thesis on this, which basically says if you look throughout history, um, there was always a kind of part of part of society that attracted the most talent. And he's, his argument is basically right now, that's the technology industry. And so a lot of talent has kind of gone out of um, government or out of you know, the, the, the public sector into technology because the opportunity to change things quickly, make money, be the first trillionaire, whatever, whatever motivates you, right? And so it, there could be a hollowing out of sort of the capacity of the state to respond. That's one way of thinking about it. I actually, I think of it as being a little bit more ideological. So for me, I think we've just not really had political leadership that sort of sort of said, you know, I'm going to we're going to transform this country um, in a way that really embraces all of this and is kind of, you know, 
keeps pace with technological change. And I think you've you've had examples of that. You know, if you look at Lee Kuan Yew um, in Singapore, obviously lots to discuss about Singapore and their politics, but it's very interesting the way that he basically kind of was a founder almost of a country that went from third world to first world in 30 years. And some of the things he did were just very, very bold, ambitious things that ultimately he took a lot of risks and, and it delivered for the country and for the citizens. And so I think we've lacked that level of boldness. And the reason I, I sort of cite neoliberalism and laissez-faire economics is because I remember when I was talking to people about that AI nationalism, so I was amazing to me that I would be meeting with conservative politicians and they'd be telling me about British Leyland as the reason why you can't nationalize DeepMind. Crazy. And it's just like, what is going on? This is like, Crazy. you know, it's like you know, decades later and who really cares about some failed car company at this point? Also, you have Taiwan, which I think Taiwan produces like one's sixth of global microprocessors, 90% of the ultra high-end ones, you know, the ultra high-end ones, which China can't create at the moment. And it's kind of, you know, that's the whole point of this, this set of sanctions and trade embargoes that the US has put on them. That is entirely because of state-led innovation by the Taiwanese government. It's a country of what, 25 million people? And, and in the world where Taiwan is making one sixth of the world microprocessors, we have British politicians saying, sorry, we can't do that because of this thing that happened in 1975 or whatever. Crazy. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's um, obviously there are some people really trying, but I think the system as a whole is very trapped in an old ideology that sort of doesn't, just sort of wants to be quite hands off rather than hands on. And, you know, I work with Mariana Mazzucato at her institute at UCL. And I really, when I first came across her book, The Entrepreneurial State, it just blew me away because it really, if you've been a founder for most of your kind of working life, like I have, it really described, and but you really care about the future of the UK, the future of Europe. Um, it really described a different mode of politics, which is this very entrepreneurial kind of founder approach, which says, right, like the state is going to take a point of view. It's going to have a vision. It's going to pick missions that really matter. It's going to invest very ambitiously to make things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. And I'll give you an example of something that like right now for me is very inspiring. So um, within nuclear fusion, um, you know, you've got a number of different concepts for how to put fusion on the grid. Um, and we've made enormous progress in fusion over the last few decades. And we're now actually, I think, within touching sight of it happening. And the dominant approach that's that's really taken us closer to, you know, fusion on the grid is uh, a technology called magnetic confinement fusion. You have very powerful magnets that confine essentially a sun on Earth, and you use that to basically produce a sun on Earth and, and, and extract energy. And the dominant mode of, of doing magnetic confinement fusion is something called the tokamak. And the tokamak was a device that's, you know, there's hundred, probably $100 billion been invested in tokamaks globally over the last um, over the last 50 years. And the German government actually took a different point of view, and they said, there is this other device which has a lot of attractive things about it that actually, you know, are very hard to do, but we might now have enough computing power to do it. And they've been in quietly investing, um, you know, large amounts of money, but still quite small for fusion into making this happen. And over the last uh, 20 or so years, they've taken this alternative fusion reactor design um, all the way up to the point where we might actually be able to build a power plant. And it's called the Stellarator. And the German government has done that kind of almost single-handedly. The, the most advanced Stellarator in the world is in North Germany, and it's light years ahead of any other Stellarator. And that's the sort of thing that just gives me real goosebumps when I think about what the state can do when it, when it really wants to shape markets. You know, if the UK said, right, we're going to take a point of view, fusion is going to happen in the next 20 years. Um, 
we want to have this country running on fusion um, in a material way. We want that to be a massive industry for this country. We're going to have this incredibly ambitious kind of investment mandate behind that. I think it. I, that's the sort of politics that excites me and makes me feel like um, we would have a politics that matches exponential change rather than just kind of runs behind it trying to play catch up. How popular is that kind of stuff in, in your world? So you mentioned Mariana Mazzucato. I suppose, you know, she she proselytizes a kind of social democracy with an interventionist state, like you say, with like an emphasis on entrepreneurialism as well. So it's quite a unique blend. Although I, I really find it's a 21st century variant of 20th century social democracy, kind of updated for the network society. It, it, are those ideas more popular than one might imagine amongst these kinds of circles? Because tech people are, are generally open to new ideas or, or are you something of an outlier in terms of uh, enjoying Mariana's work? I don't really know if I'm an outlier amongst founders. I think that founders are, are quite specific people in that they're really they're drawn towards taking risk. They often want to try to make the world better by building some product that they think the world needs. Um, and I think a lot of them are quite radical in their bones, quite risk taking, and I think they're drawn to they're drawn to interesting ways of thinking about politics often. Um, I would say investors, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of technically my day job as an investor, tend to be um, you know, uh, a lot more focused on turning money into money yeah. than actually really directing markets. So a little while back, you mentioned quantum computing and the multiverse. And I know that's not the topic of this conversation, and I, I'm sure you have a great deal of knowledge about it, but you'll be very humble and say, I'm not the right person to speak to. But this is really intriguing, and I think our audience would love to hear more about it. What's this relationship between quantum computing and the, the inference that it perhaps gives us a glimpse at the possibility of a, a multiverse, multiple universes? Um, I think I probably will try to stick to what I, I know something about within quantum computing. So... Um, I chair a company called Facecraft, which is a company founded by a number of um, uh, UK professors. Um, one of the professors that founded it is the sort of co-chair of the most important conference this year in quantum computing. So they are some of the kind of global leaders in this field. And what they're doing is developing software to uh, run on quantum computers. And so as a result of sort of supporting those founders over the last kind of three and a half years, um, I've kind of had a bit of a window into what's happening in quantum computing, and it really is quite amazing. So you've got these machines, um, probably the, the two kind of most imp impressive machines in the world. One is built by Google in, in um, uh, down in LA, um, and the other bit is built in China. And these machines take sort of, um, they use superconducting materials um, trapped in these kind of crazy cages um, to basically uh, run computing operations that really allow for um, a much wider range of possibilities than digital computers, which are more sort of deterministic. Um, and so, and this is because a digital computer has a zero or one binary system, and quantum isn't constrained by that. Well, yeah, it sort of allows you, you. It kind of it remains in superposition, so it's neither one or zero yeah. until finally you kind of collapse the superposition. So, what that allows you to do is to simulate on a computer things in the real world that are quantum. Because we know the real world is quantum, right? That's been established a, a long a, for over a long time, um, and yet when we're interfacing with quantum systems, for example, material science or biology, we still use classical computers to simulate them, and so we're sort of trying to use something deterministic to simulate something quantum. 
And so what's really exciting for me about, about quantum computing is that you may have a tool that lets us simulate aspects of nature that we have historically not been able to simulate. And so, for example, we can suddenly design incredible new materials that we can use to, the engineers can use to make things we've not been able to make until now. Um, uh, or we can simulate biology in a way that we currently can't today. And as a result, design amazing new drugs. And so I think that like, the way I think about quantum computers is they are a class of computer that allows us to explore and understand the universe in a way that classical computers don't. And that just feels like it's kind of like the invention of a microscope or something. It's like a really important new tool that gives us visibility into a realm that we currently don't really have computing resources that are appropriate for. You have all these great analogies. I love this. So the idea of a quantum computer is like a microscope. And of course, prior to the microscope, people didn't really understand bacteria, germs, you know, the, the, the majority of organisms on the face of the earth because they weren't visible to the human eye. You're saying something similar could be possible with quantum computing. Yeah, and I think it's really about simulation. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that I guess I've got personally really excited about is you know, you've got some incredible classes of materials that we know are quantum materials, right? The way that like superconducting materials, for example, we know are quantum. Um, and superconductors are amazing, you know, in that they are from a climate perspective, an energy perspective, they're like the material because you have no heat loss to resistance. So you could transmit energy across the UK without losing any. Um, you have new energy storage opportunities. Fusion reactors, the, the type I talked about, require very powerful superconducting magnets to work. Um, MRI machines require them. So they're kind of this magical class of materials called quantum materials. And because they are quantum materials, there's only so much we can really understand them by applying classical computing techniques to them. Whereas a, a quantum computer would let you simulate them in a completely different way. And as a result, we might be to discover new materials that we don't have access to today. Before we started this interview, I asked you if you would consider moving to the States. You know, that's kind of a cliche thing, but, you know, people generally make their fortune over in, in, in the US when it comes to technology businesses. You said no, or you weren't really inclined to. So, so why, why do you want to stay here in the UK? I mean, I think the UK has given me kind of, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite patriotic. I, I feel very you know, very appreciative of what I've been given in terms of the the privilege of growing up somewhere with universal healthcare, um, with great education, um, with, you know, freedom of speech, the rule of law. Like there's lots of aspects of our society I'm very proud of, proud to be kind of, you know, to pr proud of, and I believe are really important to endure. Um, and as we were talking also earlier, you know, we should recognize these things as fragile. You know, Iran was a democracy once and is not now. And so, I feel a duty to give back to the UK, give back to Europe, and very specifically the the the, the sort of investment fund that my partners and I have set up. It's a um, we're all former founders, right? That's the the first thing about us, and the second thing is we've set it up to try and have GDP level impact on Europe. And so the idea is to help build some companies using our kind of scar tissue as founders to help another generation of founders who are like us to build companies that can end up being bigger than we've seen in Europe up until now. So I think of Skype and I think Skype could have been Facebook. I see DeepMind and I think DeepMind could have been Google or OpenAI. Or I look at Arm and I think Arm could have been NVIDIA. And so we've got these companies where we never really got them to be what they could have been, their full potential to be these like transformational European technology companies. And so our mission as a as a kind of as a fund is to 
try to produce a few of these companies that can change whole industries for the better and by doing so have impacts on European GDP, but also put Europe at the table when it comes to describing what's happening in an important new era of technology. So if we're going to put fusion on the grid um, in the next, you know, in the 2030s, say, um, and Germany has been the state with the most kind of entrepreneurialism to invest in accelerators well ahead of everyone else in the world, it would be a travesty if the, the the fusion company that turns that into a into a startup isn't in Europe, in my opinion. And so I, I I do feel I do feel just very embedded in European values. I mean, I lived in China, I lived in America. I I've you know, a lot of admiration for both those societies in different ways. Um, but I guess I'm kind of pretty European to my core. That's interesting. You said patriotic, but then you say European. So can you go into that a bit more? Because um, in, in the UK, we've had this, you know, I don't want to sort of tread over old ground, but they're often held in counterpoint to one another. Yeah. And I think that's a bit of a, I don't know, like, I think there's a lot of nuance that's been lost from discussion around Brexit. So um, a good example is one of the AI companies I work with, um, the founder um, chose to actually locate the company in London rather than Silicon Valley because it was going to be easier to recruit the people he wanted into the company. Right. So we talk about the UK, you know, being a much more, you know, people talk, people caricature it as being more closed post Brexit. But actually, there's been some great um, research done by John Paul Murdoch at the uh, the Financial Times that I think sort of shows that's actually not necessarily true in all domains. And I haven't heard that as much as um, you might think from some of these leading edge technology companies. Um, and so I think there's this kind of, we want to make everything black and white, but actually, there are ways in which um, I think that, you know, a suitably ambitious progressive government that really wanted to embrace Brexit and make it work could do really interesting things with it. And so I don't, I'm not like reflexive, even though I voted Remain, I'm not reflexively negative about Brexit and sort of, it's just, oh, these people who just basically sit there complaining about it all day long on Twitter, like five, you know, five, you know, and years on, what, 2016, right? Mm -hmm. So like um, seven years on from it, they're, they're sort of, there's a, there's a sort of, I don't know, it's it become a, a sort of a tribal identity rather than a sort of first principles assessment of what we should actually do as the UK to to sort of make the UK the best possible place to live. Yeah, David Deutsch, who who um, is one of these hugely influential figures in Silicon Valley, British man, you know, he's based, I think, in Oxford at the moment. And he, he advocated leave. Mm. And, you know, I don't agree with his arguments. I certainly don't think it was wise to leave the single market in the way that we have done. But this idea that everybody who voted leave is thick and stupid, you know, David Deutsch is literally one of the smartest human beings who's ever lived. And and like you say, there are there are opportunities, particularly with goal-oriented public policy, with new technologies that you probably could do interesting things with in a way that you probably can't, or it's harder to do inside the European Union. But going back to that point about patriotism, so you're patriotic towards the UK or to Europe or both? How's yeah, it both, yeah. I mean, I... I, I I guess like the reason I, I think of I think George Orwell had a lovely sort of take on nationalism versus patriotism. I think he said something like, you know, nationalism is kind of the assertion of your values on other people and pushing your country's values on other people, whereas patriotism is just sort of saying it's kind of defending your values and just saying like these are things that are important to me and we want to preserve some of these things. And I I feel you know that you know NHS is the the good the, the kind of classic example. It's just something that I feel very grateful for 
and I feel patriotic about wanting it to it to continue and to thrive. And you know, if we're going to apply AI in the NHS, I want it to be done in an incredibly thoughtful way that expands what we've got today rather than any way undermines it. So where did you live in China and the US? You said you, you were there a few years ago? Yeah. So I lived in um I lived in I moved to China when I was 18 in 2000 to study Mandarin and then um, went to university, studied a kind of engineering and machine learning, and then went back to China in 2005 again to study machine, uh, to study Mandarin. Um, and then I moved to the US, uh, Silicon Valley in 2006. And so, um, uh, I guess I've, I've, I think I was drawn to both places because they're where a lot was changing very rapidly in the world. And it was, I think somewhere where the pace of change was very exhilarating, um, but I really feel, I think, the most at home in Europe in terms of kind of the the values. You know, I think, um, and I'd love to see Europe's technology industry and, and Europe's governments really kind of rise to the moment that is coming in 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 with all this exponential technological change. Mm, final question, because it goes back to the thing you you mentioned. You wrote this essay about AI nationalism. There's a great talk on YouTube, by the way. Once people have finished watching this and maybe watched another Navarro Media video. You, you do a great talk on AI nationalism. It's from a few years ago. Um, and you you quote a, a great book, AI Superpowers. Mm. Uh, and it's the hypothesis of that, I think, is a really strong one. One of the best books I've read in, in a while, um, a few years ago. I think PricewaterhouseCoopers say that between 2015 and 2035, you know, $15, $16 trillion will be added to the global economy by AI more or less something like that. And about 70% of that goes to basically the US and China. So all of the gains of this new technology basically are concentrated in these two AI superpowers. Imagine the steam engine, but rather than just Britain benefiting initially, like we get with you know the steam revolution, the industrial revolution, and then colonialism, AI basically redounds the benefit of, of, of Beijing and, and Washington, or Washington slash California. Can you go into this hypothesis? Because it sounds to me, on the one hand, you just said a moment ago, you're patriotic to Europe. Yet this idea of AI nationalism um, seems to indicate that Europe isn't really at the races. And actually, on the present path, the two places that will benefit from this are China and the US. So I think, I think that Europe in general, um, setting aside the UK, is not very significant, um, unfortunately, within AI right now. Um, if you look at where the most important kind of concentrations of sort of talent and power are within AI and capabilities, it's actually really cities that matter. And it's Toronto, um, San Francisco, London, and Beijing. Um, and London is very much on the map. You so know, London matters more than New York? I would say so, yeah. I mean, so Demis Asabis, who arguably kicked off the race we've currently got going on with the founding of DeepMind, um, and is an absolutely, you know, exceptionally talented person, um, is now running all of Google's efforts globally from London. You know, the 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 vast majority of the sort of um, best AI researchers within Google are based in London at DeepMind's office. And so London is incredibly important. It's not just London, not just DeepMind. We also have other organizations of a sort of similar, you know, research stature to, to DeepMind. Um, so I, I think that we should not rule the UK out. And actually, I think it's a real opportunity for Europe, for U the UK to be very, to play a leadership role within Europe um, by kind of bringing some of those assets to the table when Europe wants to do stuff um, in AI regulation. Uh, but to go back to your question about kind of this race, this race between different countries, I think it's incredibly nuanced and complicated because there are basically three different levels you need to think about it at. The first is economic, 
So, you know, a country that has incredibly sophisticated AI companies will probably benefit more economically from it than, than those that don't. And that's the kind of um, takers or makers or, the, you know, the sort of steam analogy you gave. Um, the second, and you know, there is, the second is basically military. Uh, and so AI will definitely be used by militaries to achieve decisive advantage. And so in that area, again, like a state is incentivized to build out the capacity to, you know, have autonomous, mm -hmm. autonomous, um, and, and, you know, even in the Ukraine conflict, you actually see the use of machine learning to actually, you know, provide a decisive edge in certain ways. And the third is this existential thing of like, if we build something smarter and more capable than us that isn't aligned with our, our goals, it could wipe us all out. And if you look at the three different levels, um, you've got the, and you think about the US and China and the way that Kai-Fu Lee kind of presented that, that race, the US and China clearly are locked into a battle to compete economically. Um, they're certainly locked in a battle to compete militarily, like look at hypersonic missiles or something like that. But this final level, which is like, are they locked in a battle to kind of, you know, um, ensure that the human species thrives. I think they are actually, you know, they should be on the same page about that, right? So you've got this really challenging problem where you've got two levels of competition and one level where you desperately need cooperation. And that's why I think that like the really missing piece right now here is kind of international leadership around coordination around how we approach these most powerful AI systems that could become super intelligent. That's so interesting around AGI. And I, I, I can see the argument for cooperation as you would hope for, say, around climate change. Mm. Um, but I suppose pulling it back a bit, so going back to the narrow AI things um, that you spoke about a while back, clearly AI is going to be massively disruptive in terms of economics. And I suppose if you look at the last 20, 25 years and Silicon Valley really capturing so much value across the West, you know, I'm from Bournemouth. If you walk down the high street in Bournemouth, loads of businesses have shut down because that value has been captured by a company headquartered in, mm. in California, right? And that, that is an incredible concentration of political, economic, and, and cultural power. Mm. And the argument is the same thing will happen with AI, with more businesses to a far greater extent. Mm. And the concern is that basically the world will be divided into two economic spheres, US, China-centric. And, and, and the rest of the world will, broadly speaking, just be their satellites. So we don't need to be talking about an AGI and, oh, great power confrontation will lead to somebody potentially creating Skynet because they're seeking military superiority, although that's an interesting debate. But we could be returning to a bipolar world similar to the Cold War, but in many ways far more extensive. Do you, or do you think I'm, I'm sort of being a bit sort of hyperbolic here? Because you have... so. Quickly to go back, Kai-Fu Lee talks about AI superpowers. Why would it be China and the US are the AI superpowers? They have the largest populations, ergo the largest amounts of data, and they have the greatest amount of computational power. You might think that you know the EU might be a third pole, but it's not really working out hitherto. So geopolitically, the geopolitics of AI, I mean, it, you can see a world, can't you, where there's a great deal of sort of economic dependence, basically a, a kind of colonialism. Uh, so I, I think it, you know, um, in the AI nationalism essay, I gave an example of a kind of that sort of AI colonialism um, with a company called Cloudwalk that, from China that was selling certain technologies to, I think it was Zimbabwe. Um, but I actually don't really view it as much um, from a kind of how it affects individual citizens at a at a um, international level, more national level. You know, I think there are, I think the kind of haves and have nots within technology are already playing out on a national level. If you look at the, you know, if you look at the um, deprivation 
um, in the Bay Area, right? And you compare the sort of the 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 lot of some of the people you know um, on the streets in the Tenderloin compared to some of the people running these AI companies. You've you've got far more rad, you know, the Gini coefficient in some ways in 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 sort of some of the some U.S. cities or across U.S. states is it may be more extreme than it is um, between certain nations. And I'm more I think that's more concerning the the the, the lot of the average person on, on Bournemouth. Uh, versus a lot of the average person in London than it is to me of, of kind of these these sort of country versus country comparisons. And so I think actually the really challenging political problem is as actually how you kind of how you make how you kind of raise the floor more broadly in a world in which there are further and further returns to capital. I think we'll end it there. Ian, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.